The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from John 16, 1 through 15. It's John 16, 1 through 15. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that scripture for us this morning. Jesus says in this passage, he says, it's good for you that I should leave. It's for your good that I should leave because I will send the helper. And then he says, all that the Father has is mine and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We can read these passages and kind of think of them as just kind of God talk, like like the way God talks to people and says, you know, I will, I will give you my, my presence, I'll give you my spirit, and it can be really squishy and intangible for us sometimes in our minds, but God never means it that way. He's being very specific in what he's saying. And here in this passage in the upper room, Jesus has his disciples and he's telling them, listen, there's going to come a time when you're not going to know what to say on your own and my spirit is going to tell you what to say with understanding and with conviction and with clarity. You don't have a category for this yet, but it's coming. Specificity. When does this happen? 51 days later after he says this. 
Pentecost. Pentecost. So the upper room discourse happens the day before Passover. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. That's what Pentecost means, 50. And there on that 50th day after Passover, one of those things that happens in Scripture where you get just a few verses and it's mind-boggling what's being described. It's as mind-boggling as that passage in the crucifixion story where it talks about the graves splitting open and those who had been dead coming up and walking around and talking to people. Remember that? If we get a verse about that and nothing else, come on. <laughs> Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost was a feast. It was a feast that the Hebrew people all observed. It, it, it is the celebration, the feast of first fruits, which is so specific to what Jesus is telling his disciples here when he's telling them, you are going to bear fruit by way of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Pentecost is when they bear the first fruit of what Jesus is saying there. It's when people bring the first fruits of their harvest as an offering and celebration of God in thanks. And one of the things that makes that holiday so strategic for the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost is it's prescribed in Scripture, and so it means that people make pilgrimages for it. And so people from all over are gathering in Jerusalem for this holiday. Pentecost was that feast that commemorated the day in which, coming down as a pillar of fire and power, God delivered his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So it's fitting that the Lord would choose this holiday as the day to send the promised Holy Spirit, the helper that John wrote about, the one who would bear through the lives of Jesus' disciples the first fruits of Christianity. 51 days after he said this. What happened at Pentecost? Acts 2 tells us that the disciples were gathered in one place and the Holy Spirit came down like a mighty rush of wind descending like tongues of fire on the believers gathered there and filled the disciples and they began to speak in other tongues and languages. Very fitting that this morning part of our service would be in another language. When the Holy Spirit came, this rush of wind, these, this tongue of fire descending on the disciples and them speaking in other tongues and other languages, what happened? What happened is impossible to get our minds around if there is no such thing as a Holy Spirit. Because what happened is Simon Peter stood up and delivered one of the most compelling and persuasive sermons in history explaining the gift of the Holy Spirit and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. How can I say it was one of the most persuasive and compelling sermons in history? Because there was no church yet, and 3,000 people heard the sermon and believed. 3,000. And it makes us ask the question, how in the world is that possible? How in the world would it be possible that Peter could have been so ready to be able to deliver such a compelling sermon on the spot and that so many people would have responded in faith. How is that possible? 
several times during Jesus' conversation with his disciples in the upper room, he tells them how it's possible. He tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and he is going to speak through you and he is going to call to mind the things you are to say. Several times in the upper room discourse, Jesus tells his disciple why he's telling them what he's telling them. You may have people in your life where sometimes you have to tell them things and then tell them why you're telling them what you're telling them. That's what he does. And and it basically falls into two categories for Jesus when he does this, or two things he's trying to say. He tells them things that are going to happen first so that when they do, when those things do happen, the disciples will understand why they're happening and not lose heart. And so even in this passage, he says, I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. The other reason he tells them about things that are coming is so that when those things happen, the disciples will remember that Jesus said this was going to happen. They'll say, oh, he told us this was going to happen. And and then they will understand the significance of it. And so there's comfort that he's trying to give them and also understanding that he's giving them. And so that's why he's telling them that he's about to depart and what will happen after he departs. Because part of what he needs them to know is this is not going to be a peaceful departure. The events that are about to go down over the course of the next 24 hours are going to shake them to their core. They're going to scatter as a result of it. And if they thought that was a lot, three days later, The world is going to change. There's going to be a resurrection. And so he prepares them. And he prepares them in a way where he's telling them, in a loving and gracious way, but he's telling them, I'm telling you this now, but you don't understand what I'm saying. But you will. And I'm going to help you remember, but I'm just telling you now. Why does he do this? He doesn't do it merely to help them keep their heads up when things get hard. He's telling them for another reason that's very practical. Remember one of the promises that he keeps making to his disciples that has everything to do with Pentecost, the Feast of the First Fruits. He tells them throughout this section of John that he will bear lasting spiritual fruit through their lives. And that's about to happen. And it's about to happen in ways they don't understand. They're going to have a part in his redeeming work in the world. They're going to see spiritual fruit coming sooner than they know. And it will be of greater significance than they can imagine. And Jesus wants them to understand what is happening when the time comes. And to comfort them. When Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave them, they're sad, as any of us would be. When a friend tells us they're moving, we're sad, right? They don't want him to go. But what they don't understand is that when Jesus is talking about leaving them and not being with them, what he's talking about is he's talking about how their redemption and ours is going to be accomplished. He's leaving because he's going to accomplish our 
redemption. He will go to the cross. He will offer up his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As Isaiah 53 puts it, the punishment that will bring us peace is about to be laid upon him. So he's saying, I'm going to go, and the reason he's going to go is to accomplish our redemption. Then when he starts talking about the Holy Spirit, he's talking about how that redemption which he accomplished will then be applied. These are theological categories, categories that theologians use to talk about redemption. Redemption accomplished, and then redemption applied. The Holy Spirit will be how the redemption he accomplishes on the cross will be applied to our lives in the here and now. How? How will his redeeming work accomplished on the cross be applied to our lives? It'll be applied to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Lord will take up residence inside of us. This, he says, is why it's important that he goes away. In the going away, he's not just going to accomplish our redemption, but he will then send the Holy Spirit who will apply that redeeming work to our lives through his presence dwelling in us. This, my friends, is doctrine. Doctrine's a good thing. How will the Holy Spirit apply that redemption to our lives? Jesus says, by convicting you. By convicting you of sin, by convicting you of righteousness, and by convicting you of judgment. Commentators are unclear on exactly what Jesus means here. But the overarching message of what he's saying is clear. The word convict is also a word that can mean convince or reveal, that he is convincing us of our sin, and he's convincing us of his righteousness to atone for our sin, and he's convincing us of the need for judgment and that judgment being laid upon him. And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's going to do is enable you to believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit is going to enable us to believe in the saving work of Jesus. Remember, faith itself, faith itself is a gift of God. We read about that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Your faith is not a work of your own. It's a work of the Lord. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And Jesus is telling us how we're given the gift of faith through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in our hearts and takes us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Christ is talking about here with his disciples in the upper room, he's talking about nothing less than the birth of Christianity. It's amazing what he's telling. Christianity is about to happen. And he tells his disciples that this is coming, and then he says, I know that you don't understand what I'm talking about. Sometimes I wish in Scripture we, we knew the tone of how things were said, but I would doubt very strongly that Jesus' tone 
would have been sarcastic here. Because what he says is he says, when I speak of leaving you, you never ask where I'm going. And the reason you don't ask where I'm going is because you're overcome with the grief of the thought of it. Your only response is grief. They are focused on what they're about to lose, which of course they are. They have the second person of the Trinity as their companion and teacher and leader and friend, the one who gives them peace. But here Jesus is saying, no, but if you knew why I was going, which you will come to understand soon, you would be overcome with joy. You would be overcome with joy. You will understand that it is good for you that I should leave because I'm going to be with you in an even deeper way than you experience me right now. My spirit will reside in you. And they listen and they try to understand and they don't and they put pieces together And then 51 days later, Pentecost happens. And suddenly, we see how Peter would have been able to stand and deliver a sermon so compelling that 3,000 souls would believe and be baptized on that very first day. How the Holy Spirit applied the redeeming work of Jesus Christ to their lives as he spoke through Peter filling them, just as Jesus said he would do. So specific. And then we have these key images that are poetry for us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, it describes the Holy Spirit coming as a rush of wind, as tongues of fire, and speaking in other languages. And I want to spend just a moment on each of those things. Let's start with the wind, the rush of wind. Verse 2 in Acts 2 describes what sounds like a violent wind blowing from heaven. There are two primary ways that God's Spirit manifests His presence on earth in the Old Testament. Wind and fire. In the Old Testament, there is rich imagery of the Spirit of God being breath. The breath of God, the wind of God. At creation, God forms the man from the dust, and what does he do? He breathes into his nostrils, giving him life. In Exodus, the people are crossing the Red Sea. As they're crossing, it's a wind that is driving the waters back as they cross over on dry ground. And then again, we see the presence of God as wind in Ezekiel 37 where Ezekiel is looking at the valley that's filled with dry bones, which represent the people in exile. And God said to him, I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life, and the dry bones dance. Whenever wind represents the presence of God, it's always linked to God's power to give new life. That wind is breath, it's life, it's new life. And we can think of the spirit wind at Pentecost as an image of the breath of God empowering believers there for the work of proclaiming the message. He is the breath in their lungs to proclaim a gospel in a way that gives people new life. 
It's poetry. The breath, the wind comes in and the wind goes out. And then there's the fire. Fire is this other primary sign of God's presence in the Old Testament. You see it when God cuts his covenant with Abraham. He appears as a torch. And with Moses, he appears as a burning bush. And later to Israel, he appears as a pillar of fire. And that fire was used for light and it was used for heat. Both images of what God would bring into this cold and darkened world. This fire is also an image of something that spreads. As Christianity is meant to be a spreading flame of illumination and worth. And so there in Acts 2, Luke describes what seemed to be, quote, tongues of fire that came and separated and came to rest on each of them. Now there's breath and now there's a mouth with which to speak, and that tongue is a flame. The the fact that the flame appeared as tongues resting on each of them is a wonderful allusion to what the Holy Spirit was equipping them to do, which was testify, speak. You have the breath of God, you have the tongue of God. Speak, and it will spread. And the Spirit of God was, in essence, becoming their tongue, which would articulate the gospel to an otherwise spiritually dead soul. And this is how the disciples would bear the fruit that Jesus is telling them they're going to bear. And it happens on the Feast of First Fruits. Ephesians 2 describes unbelievers as spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. What hope can we have that our testimony would ever lead to the rebirth of someone spiritually dead in their sins? The hope that God's spirit, like a fire, would light up the darkness of spiritual death and warm that death's coldness to life, breathing the breath of life into them, making them alive in Christ. Breath, fire, and then words. Speaking in other tongues. After the wind and the fire, the text tells us they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one another in tongues. Now, let's not run too far ahead into the sensational idea of the sign gift of tongues because that's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is spoken languages, that they're speaking in in known languages. That's what's happening, and it's a powerful thing. Because you have to remember what's going on here. It's, it's Pentecost. It's this feast. Pilgrims have come from all over the world. It's turned Jerusalem into this cosmopolitan meeting ground for people all over the world. Acts 2, 8 through 10 tells us the breadth of the geography that was represented there. It says people were there from Libya and Africa to Parthia and Asia to Rome and southern Europe and all places in between. The world was meeting here. It's not just that many tongues were represented in Jerusalem, but so were the cultures of the world. One of the things that's just fascinating about what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is it is the, the redemption of Babel. Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel? You've seen the pictures? The people say, we want God to do what we want him to do. And so we're going to build a tower so high to the heavens that we will find him. 
And when we do, he won't be able to deny us. And so what does the Lord do? He takes the people who speak a language and he confuses their language. So they can't talk to each other anymore. And they look at each other in bewilderment and they set down their tools and they just disperse and stop because they can't communicate anymore. Acts chapter 2 is the next time the people of God are all gathered in one place, understanding each other in one tongue. It's the undoing of Babel. What happened in Acts is bearing witness to the veracity of what Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room concerning the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke uses the term filled with the Holy Spirit nine times in the book of Acts. Let me tell you where. In Acts 4, 8, 4.31, 6.3, 7.55, 9.17, 11.24, 13.9, and 13.52. And they all have something in common. Do you know what they have in common? It's this. Each use of the term filled with the Holy Spirit describes when a believer is filled with the Holy Spirit and they immediately, in each case, they immediately begin to verbally bear witness to Christ in powerful and effective ways. Every time somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, what do they do? They speak. They speak with the breath of God and the tongue of God, the words of God. And what happens? People respond in faith. Jesus is going to do so exactly, precisely what he's telling his disciples is going to happen in the upper room. Even though there's imagery and metaphor and language that they're like, surely this is figurative. Some of it's figurative, but it's also not figurative at all. He's going to do precisely what it is that he said he's going to do. And so what happens is when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak and people respond in faith. And the emphasis then is not on what is said, the emphasis is on what is heard. What is heard changes people's lives. And so the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. The immediate result was the proclamation of the gospel to this collection, this crowd of people who represent the entire world, and they all understand what they're saying. They all hear it in their own language. Tim Keller said it this way, the first worship service was preached in what language, in what culture? All of them. It's it's poetry that the Spirit would come on the disciples in such a way during this celebration of the first fruits that they might see the Lord equipping them to do the very thing he called them to do in the upper room, bear fruit. Peter leaves that day at Pentecost persuaded that the Lord will use him as a fisher of men. And so we too must bear witness to Christ, believing that the power behind our witness comes not from ourselves, but from him. He's the one who equips us with his Holy Spirit to carry out his call on our lives to bear witness to him. He's with us. He's in us. He's working through us. And then he does just that. He uses our lives to bear witness to him through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that he has applied to accomplish our redemption.
It's a beautiful thing and a mysterious thing to be called by the Lord to bear witness to him and bear fruit. But it's his work, and he does it. He does it in us and through us, and it's a holy privilege to be a part of it. May that be this congregation's continuing story. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the way that a passage like this where you are describing to your disciples in that upper room how you're going to work through them in the, with, by the indwelling Holy Spirit is so precisely and specifically fulfilled for them 51 days later and now continues as you work. Lord, it's a gift. Thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you would deepen our understanding of your love for us and uh, give us courage to speak in your name. Uh, be the lifter of our heads when things are hard and when we're sad and struggling. And we just give you thanks for your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.